You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Washington Post Live's First Look offers a smart, inside take on the day's politics. In this episode, host Jonathan Capehart sits down with Dan Balls, Donna Edwards, and Hugh Hewitt to discuss Biden's infrastructure plan, voting rights, and former Vice President Mike Pence's recent speech. Let's listen. Good morning. I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for The Washington Post. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. And back this morning, after a long absence, I think, is the incomparable Dan Baltz, chief political correspondent of The Washington Post. Good morning, Dan. Welcome back. Thank you, Jonathan. Nice to be back with you. All right. Let's talk about the lead story on the front page of The Washington Post this morning. The headline is... Biden offers tax concession and infrastructure talks with key Republican. That key Republican is West Virginia Senator Shelley Moore Capito. And the tax concession is an offer from the president of a new minimum corporate tax of 15 percent instead of raising corporate taxes from 21 percent to 28 percent. What's going on here, Dan? And what does this signal about negotiations on an infrastructure bill going forward? Well, Jonathan, I think a couple of things are going on. One, obviously, is that Biden is quite serious about trying to get a bipartisan deal or show that he is doing everything he can possibly do uh, to try to make that happen. And I think that uh, concession that he put out on the table uh, as a possibility is one indicator of that. The Republicans have been steadfast in their opposition to doing anything to go back into the 2017 tax bill, um, including raising corporate taxes in any way. They've been very firm that that's a red line for them. Um, By doing what he did yesterday, Biden is saying, well, we'll try to finance this with a different tax proposal, uh, this corporate minimum tax. Um, I don't think that means that he's given up on the idea of raising corporate taxes, but he would probably do that at a later point, but not as part of this bill. Um, he's also uh, cut down considerably the amount of spending that he would uh, would like to see in this bill. Um, but the but it looks as though they're still fairly far apart. He and he and Senator Capito are supposed to talk again today, um, and we will see whether you know how, what what the Republican reaction to this is, and how you know how big the gap still remains um, to to get a bipartisan deal. And we'll talk about what's supposed to happen today in a little bit. But let's go to something. Um, you, you mentioned spending, but you didn't put in the, the, the adjective or the qualifier, and that's new spending. The White House um, is spent once roughly a trillion dollars in new spending, which is about four times as much of the new spending that Republicans have proposed. Um, how much of a sticking point is that going to be? If, corp- if, if raising taxes is a red line for Republicans, is this battle over new spending, is that a, a, a red line for the White House? I would expect that it is. I think that the, that the president has come down significantly on the amount of spending, but uh, the Republicans want to repurpose money that's already been authorized. And the president says, no, we need to do new spending. We need, to, we need, we need that previously authorized money for other things, and we need new spending on infrastructure. Um, and so I think that, you know, we'll see how much farther he's prepared to go, but um, he has made some quite significant concessions, um, and the Republicans, I think, now are going to have to decide whether they're prepared to up the ante in terms of spending on their side, um, or these talks will, will certainly pr- break off. I mean, I, Jonathan, there's another aspect to this, which is that 
Um, I, I think the president is trying to convince people like you know, Senator Capito's colleague from West Virginia, Joe mm -hmm. Manchin, the Democrat, uh, that that he has made every possible good faith effort to negotiate. Uh, Manchin has been consistent in saying he thinks this, we ought to have a bipartisan package. They ought to be able to get together, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and at some point, he's going to have to make a decision as to whether he thinks the president has done everything he could or whether and whether the Republicans are uh, are simply never going to get to the point uh, of having the kind of bill that the president wants. So um, there, there's two things at work here. But this issue of spending, I think, is a very significant one. And the, and the White House has been pretty clear that that's about as far as they're going to go and they want it to be new money. Mm -hmm. All right. So then let's talk about this timetable. You mentioned a moment ago that uh, Senator Capito and the president are due to speak I guess on the phone, if not in person today, this comes after a meeting that the two of them had in person, I believe in the Oval Office on Wednesday. Um, one, today, do you think or do you expect that there will be a new Republican counteroffer uh, that is in the offing today? Jonathan, that's a hard question to answer. Um, I, if there is not, I think these talks collapse. Um, mm -hmm. And so one would one would expect that in the process of the give and take and the give and take that uh, Senator Capito would come back with something, um, but whether whether it would be adequate to meet the the demands of the president is another question. And I, I think that's the the great mystery today as to where we will be, how far they apart will they be uh, after the two principals talk, as opposed to where they seem to be to going into that discussion. Mm -hmm. and, and so, you know, we talk a lot about the, the negotiations between the president and Republicans and the signaling to uh, Senator Manchin, the other, as you said, the other senator from West Virginia. But I'm just wondering, Dan, how much of this quest for a bipartisan deal preying at the patience of the Democratic caucus, um, not just on Capitol Hill, but among rank-and-file Democrats around the country who look at what's going on and thinking, are you bananas? They don't want to work with you at all. Well, that's, that's the calibration that the president is going to have to make fairly soon. I think that the, that the patience on the left is, is uh, probably more than run out at this point. Um, you know, they you know, recognize that he's the president and he's got a lot of things he's trying to do, and, and many of them are things that they want him to do. Uh, but on this particular issue, on the question of how long uh, and how seriously he should negotiate with Republicans if there is no movement on the part of the Republicans, um, will will intensify uh, next week after we see what happens today. I think that there will be a growing clamor uh, to move forward without Republicans if there's no real progress after today. And actually, Dan, you remind me when you said next week, that triggered in my head, Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg last week, I think it was about a week ago today, this time when he said, you know, the week of June 7th is going to be D-Day. That is going to be the time when we, and I'm paraphrasing here, that is going to be the time when we will have to decide, we will have to make a move and see whether Republicans are serious. Um, and it sounds like from what you just said, yeah, actually, indeed, next week is the make or break moment. Yeah, although we, you know, we say this and, and deadlines come and go. I mean, I remember having a conversation with a with a White House official several weeks ago who said, "Well, after this this meeting, there was an upcoming meeting 
uh, with Senator Capito. After this meeting, we'll have a pretty good idea of where things are and where, you know, w what might be possible. Um, that was some weeks ago. And so uh, part of this depends on how willing the president of the United States is to keep it going. Um, and as you say, I mean, he's, you know, he's got, he's got the pressure coming and, and increasing from um, a restless Democratic caucus and, and, a, and a progressive left. Um, and so he's, he, he, as we know, bipartisanship is part of his DNA. Um, but he, he is, he's at a point now where these can't go on that much longer unless there's continuing progress. And, and so far, it doesn't look as though there's that much. There's still a big gap. So given everything you just said, Dan, from the moment we started talking until the end of your last answer, how much optimism is there that there can be an infrastructure deal reached um, and moving forward to passage before the summer is over? I think it's less than 50-50 at this point. <clears throat> but I, uh, again, I think so much depends on what the response from Senator Capito is today. Um, if, if she comes back with a, a serious counterproposal, then you could see these negotiations continuing and, and uh, you know, continuing to try to narrow differences. If she doesn't, I think it's very, very difficult to see how the two sides would get together. All right, I'm going to squeeze in one more, one more question because I think we've got like 15 seconds left. But we've been talking about Joe Manchin, and I want to get this in, and it has to do with voting rights. Um, it's it, the For the People Act. It passed the House. Um, it is sitting in the Senate. There are a lot of Democrats who are clamoring, particularly those Democrats in Texas, state Democrats in Texas, who walked out to prevent a, a sweeping voting uh, voter bill from being uh, passed saying to Washington, we need you to do something. And that is the For the People Act uh, from their perspective. Um, Senator Joe Manchin is already on record as saying he thinks the For the People Act is too sweeping. Um, and then on top of it, he's not keen on doing away with the filibuster to allow for a simple majority vote on anything. And that is including with two interviews that are airing on MSNBC and CNN from, I believe, yesterday. They're airing today. So what is it going to take, do you think, to move Senator Manchin at a, minim at a minimum to rethink his position on the filibuster? Is it Republican recalcitrance, continued Republican recalcitrance, that would make that possible? Uh, he seems so dug in on this, Jonathan, that it's hard to hard to think about what it would actually take for him to do it. Um, and as you say, because of his own uh, concerns about the the overall size and shape and detail of the For the People Act, um, he's got he's got two hurdles to get over. One is that bill has to satisfy him in ways that it doesn't at this point, and then he would have to get over his opposition to doing anything to fundamentally change the filibuster. So um, I, I think that the, the For the People Act, which uh, Senate Majority Leader Schumer has said he's going to have on the floor, I believe, the week of the 21st, um, mm -hmm. faces still faces a very, very difficult path. Uh, it's hard to see how that gets through without some change on Senator Manchin's part. And I don't know what that change would be. Dan, as always, just when things are getting good, we run out of time. So as always, Dan Baltz, thank you very much for coming to First Look. Have a great weekend. Thanks, Jonathan. You too. And let's go to the opinion side of The Washington Post, where we will find columnists Donna Edwards, 
former congresswoman from Maryland, and Hugh Hewitt. Donna, Hugh, welcome back to First Look. Hugh, let me start with you. Your thoughts on these new possible infrastructure concessions made by the president. Are they enough, do you think, to conjure some GOP support? I, I think the momentum is good. I talked to Senator Capito, I guess, two weeks ago now at length, and there are real negotiations going on. There are great differences. The idea of a minimum corporate tax does not offend me. As a conservative, I, I kind of like that. I didn't want to see corporate rates rise. Now, that will still result in tax hikes on American corporations, but it is, I think, a more palatable sort of tax hike on American corporations than the others. So I wouldn't be surprised to see if that doesn't move people a little bit. It won't move Joe Manchin to vote for the filibuster if it fails, but it, it's more palatable than raising the rate because a minimum tax has been part of the individual's life forever. And so a minimum tax on American corporations that certainly get something from America by virtue of doing business here uh, might make sense, provided that there's an out for companies that have extraordinarily difficult years. For example, restaurant chains have been hammered by the last year and a half. A minimum tax on American restaurant chains doesn't make any sense to me, but a minimum tax of some sort does. And so maybe that's a, they, they certainly have stopped asking for the moon on a platter, and that's a good thing. So maybe we'll get around to a compromise that makes sense. Uh, uh, wow, that is not the answer. That's not the answer I was expecting, Hugh. Donna, from, I'm struck by something that Dan Balt said in the previous segment, and that is the White House and the president it seems when it comes to the negotiations of this uh, infrastructure plan has given concession after concession after concession. Is, do you think the White House is conceding too much to a Republican party that so far, well, with the exception of coming up a little bit on the overall uh, uh, price tag on their, on their plan, hasn't really given anything? Well, you know, I am concerned about that because I do think that the president has moved quite significantly from his original package. And um, and even this latest idea of a minimum corporate tax as a way to try to pay for it is, um, is movement, too, from lowering the corporate tax rate. And so I think it's incumbent on Republicans to put up, uh, and it can't, I mean, the gap now between where the White House is and where the, um, the Republicans are, at least as negotiated by um, Senator Capito, is quite a gulf still. So I think the Republicans are gonna have to come back with a credible um, counter proposal in order for any of this to move forward. Now, I will say, um, having served with um, Senator Capito when she was in the House on the Transportation Infrastructure Committee, she was always one uh, to work across the aisle. And so I at least do trust that she is negotiating. The question is, is she negotiating for um, at least 10 senators? And I'm not really clear about that yet. Hugh, what's going to happen today? Because we know that Senator Capito and President Biden met in person, face-to-face, -face, in the Oval on Wednesday. They're due to talk 
um, at least on the phone today. It, from your reporting and what you know, do you think that there will be a new revised uh, Republican counteroffer to respond to what the president is talking about now? Not today. Today, everyone is stuck on the Bay Bridge. Jonathan and Donna, you're probably both headed to the Bay Bridge as soon as we're done here at first look. I'm not, but I know that everyone else in D.C. heads to the to the Bay Bridge and gets over to Maryland at the Eastern Shore. And so, no, Jonathan, not, not, not I. You. Okay, I don't do it either. But no. we both know that the town empties out. So next Tuesday is when the Republican conference will gather and will decide. But uh, it was my experience with, with Senator Capito. I don't want to give away confidential conversation. Her staff is working around the clock to come up with proposals that make sense that reach Republican objectives. And if I if I can spend a moment on the Bay Bridge, I interviewed uh, Larry Hogan for both my radio show and my podcast this week, Governor of Maryland. He wants money to build two bridges over the Potomac. There's a lot of stuff that Republicans want. It's actual real infrastructure, not pretend infrastructure. And so I, I think Senator Capito stands for the Common Sense Conservative Caucus, which is, you know, this 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 stuff is expensive. Let's build some bridges. Let's reduce some roads. Let's get the tunnels seismically enhanced in California. Let's build some desalinization plants. I mean, there's stuff to be done out there, but you're not going to hear about it till next week. And the and the Democrats, my my friend Donna is wrong. The Republicans don't have to do anything. Uh, they have to wait for the for the Republicans to return to the orbit of sanity. And right now they are not because they won't repurpose the slush funds that the governors have out there. And they need to be willing to do that. <laughs> I like to make you laugh, John, and I'm glad to no, make but, you Friday. No, but Hugh, you know, you're waiting for the Republicans to return to the orbit of sanity. And you're talking about infrastructure, but of course my mind went to the insanity that is happening within within the Republican Party when it comes to the former president and you know what he's saying about being reinstated in August, and but we'll, I'm going to put that aside. I don't know if we're going to have time to get to that, but Don. <laughs> well, let me say chuckle. there is no reinstatement the possibility. <laughs> Not happening. But go ahead, Don. <laughs> Good. We're all in agreement on that last point, Donna. Let's switch. Let's switch. <laughs> let's switch to voting rights. Um, President Biden, in an incredibly powerful speech in Tulsa. Uh, went in on voting rights and what's happening in states around the country, particularly Texas, and he has now charged Vice President Kamala Harris with leading the effort on protecting voting rights and whipping up support uh, um, for, the, for the People Act. How much of a challenge is this task going to be for Vice President Harris? Well, I think it's a huge challenge, and unfortunately, um, you can see around the states, I think uh, 22 laws have been passed um, around the states um, dealing with, you know, ways in which you restrict certain uh, certain voters, mostly black and brown voters. Uh, and I think the most compelling argument, frankly, for ending the filibuster is voting rights. Um, there can be no more compelling argument than that. And I think it's unfortunate that um, Senator Manchin, uh, Senator Sinema have completely misread the way the filibuster has been used over the last century um, when it comes to 
desegregation, when it comes to voting rights, Jim Crow laws, all of the bad stuff that uh, the filibuster was used to, uh, to as a blocker, uh, not as a, a move toward bipartisanship or retor returning to some golden days of the Senate working together. And, um, and I don't think Democrats writ large across the country have the stomach for this anymore. Democrats are becoming increasingly frustrated, um, particularly with these two senators, because they are standing in the way of, um, of black and brown voters being able to vote uh, in the next elections. This is really serious, and it's dangerous for Democrats. Right. And, and yes, their opposition to, to the filibuster um, is something that's going to stand in the way of the For the People Act getting passed. That being said, Hugh, you know, Senator Manchin, West Virginia, has made it clear he's not a fan of the For the People Act. Kristen Cinema of Arizona, she's a sponsor, she's a sponsor of it, but would stand in the way right now, it seems, on filibuster. But Senator Manchin has made it clear the For the People Act is not for him. The John Lewis voting rights is something he could get behind. The only problem with that, as the Washington Post reported last week, the bill actually hasn't even been written. There haven't been any hearings. So getting behind a bill that doesn't stand a chance, that hasn't even been written or introduced anywhere, that's not going to get passed before any of these laws taking effect. Do you, th is there any formulation of the For the People Act, Hugh, that you think Republicans could get be get behind. Are there provisions in that bill that could be stripped out that could get support um, from 10 Republicans who would provide the 60 votes needed to overcome a filibuster and have a simple majority vote on the floor? I don't think so, Jonathan. I am unaware of which ones those would be that would be acceptable. Voting is by the Constitution delivered to the states to conduct. Therefore, I believe that S-1 is unconstitutional. So I'd have to see what the Lewis bill turned out to be to be able to opine on whether or not it's constitutional. But uh, I don't think Joe Manchin is opposing it because he's a racist. I think he's opposing it because he's a constitutionalist. Uh, by the way, Senator Hassan of New Hampshire is also against the filibuster being repealed and also against S-1, as is uh, a number of other Democrats, as are a number of other Democrats who just don't want to be identified. Manchin is taking all the heat as is cinema, but Maggie Hassan, you should be talking to her about these things, too, because she's the New Hampshire senator who doesn't want to get rid of the filibuster, doesn't want to pass these laws either. She's up for re-election in a 50-50 state, and Kristen Nuno's going to beat her. I, I do want to point out your political question to Donna. The, the vice president must have kicked the president's dog twice. She got a sign getting voting rights passed, and she got a sign getting the border under control. Neither of those things are going to happen. So I, I ask you to know the Democratic Party better than I do. What is it that Vice President Harris did that made Joe Biden better? Because she didn't going to win either of those things. <laughs> uh, well, I don't is, agree with go that. Ahead, I, mean, I think this is about look. This is about the confidence that the uh, that President Biden has in Vice President Harris of being able to navigate some of these very very difficult and complicated uh, issues. And I mean, she is the Vice President of the United States. She does have a portfolio that the president has entrusted her with. And so, um, and I think that it, it, it's important to raise the consciousness of the American people around these things and not just to hold a Washington-only conversation about the importance of voting rights, the importance of 
reforms to our campaign finance system and um, what's happening on our borders and potential solutions to that. So I think the vice president has a strong portfolio and I actually think it's a demonstration of confidence that the president has in her. Right. I was going to. I was. That's why I laughed. Um, I don't think it's that the vice president has kicked. Um, I can't even remember the, the names of the dogs, especially the one that's gotten into a lot of trouble. But um, I don't think it's a matter of Vice President Harris kicking the Biden's dog. I, I agree with Donna. It's confidence of the president in the vice president to do some of these things. But Donna, I'm going to ask you the same question I just asked Hugh on voting rights. Because what I was thinking of, and this might be, I might write this as a, as a column. Um, I do think there are provisions within the For the People Act that could be pulled out and saved for a later day in order to maybe make it possible for Joe Manchin to get behind. And one of them is there's a provision in there about a nonpartisan redistricting. Um, where it would make it possible that a nonpartisan board would redraw the congressional lines. That's one, one thing that comes to mind. Are there any provisions within the For the People Act that you can think of that you, let's say you were still in, con <clears throat> excuse me, still in Congress, still in the Democratic caucus, that you would be willing to say, you know what, in order to get the, the nuts and bolts of this bill passed, these things right now are ancillary and we can come back to them later. Well, I do think, look, I don't believe in pulling out a comprehensive bill and separating the pieces because they are interrelational. Um, on the other hand, I do think that provisions, for example, dealing with disclosure have support on the Republican side and the Democratic side. Uh, they stood alone as the old Disclose Act those are incorporated in there. Um, and so there may be provisions like that that um, could be pulled aside. You know, I, ju I do think the problem of, of money and dark money is so pervasive that to do nothing about it means that we continue in the same muck that we've been existing in since uh, Citizens United. And I know Hugh and I are going to have different um, uh, thoughts about that. But, uh, but I think that you know, at least disclosure would give us some way of seeing all of the dark money that's uh, that's out there. So, you know, we'll see. I I, I just um, I would hesitate though uh, to pull it apart. I would much rather Senator Schumer going ahead and you know putting that thing on the floor and then making them making them all vote for it um, and and doing it in a way that they could you know avoid doing the uh, the filibuster. So mm -hmm. um, I think there's still some strategic moves that can be uh, can be pulled. So let's wait on that before we start pulling it apart. But we can do the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. We absolutely uh, can do that. It had passed in the um, in the House. Um, it's not that it hasn't been written. The Supreme Court laid out a, a roadmap for fixing um, the Section 5 provisions, and we should do that. In honor of John Lewis, everybody standing beside John Lewis, holding hands with him on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, and then mocking his, his, um, his memory by not passing the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. It's shameful. Um, Hugh, I want to come back to um, your comment about the Republicans' return to the orbit of sanity 
and bring up former Vice President Mike Pence's speech last night um, at the New Hampshire Republican dinner. He acknowledged that he and, and uh, Donald Trump may never see eye to eye on what happened on January 6th. Um, but in the same breath, he accused Democrats, bless you, Hugh, accused Thank Democrats you. of, of this using the- I love the radio. I can hit my cough button and no one can hear me sneeze. But if you sneeze in the studio, you're done. <laughs> right. And especially on camera. <laughs> yeah, I know. But it, my, I got my Kleenex handy, so go ahead. Okay. So should we read anything into the fact that it seems to be that there's a little, that there's some daylight between Mike Pence and Donald Trump over what happened on January 6th? That's question one. Uh, yes, it's a significant separation by the vice president from the president. They're never going to agree, uh, for example, that the vice president had anything other than a ceremonial role. Uh, it's clear in the Constitution he didn't. He had no power over the collection of the electoral votes by the states, and there was nothing he could have done, so they're never going to agree on that. Uh, as to characterizations of what happened, I think it was an insurrection. I think the vice president does as well. And I think you'll increasingly hear that. And if the president actually believes, I haven't seen the president say, the former President Trump, I have not seen him say he's going to be, what, what's the word, reinstalled? What, what is it? Reinstalled. Reinstalled. Okay, that, 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 that simply doesn't exist. That doesn't happen. You could prove fraud in 50 states of a significant variety, and you could prove the election was stolen by the, the, the fellows from the Las Vegas gang and George Clooney, Ocean's 15. And you don't get reinstated <laughs> in the United States. It doesn't happen. There's no way. It's never happened. And it's not going to happen. But I haven't heard him say that yet. And Mike Pence would sit here with me because he's a constitutionalist. He's a lawyer. There is no reinstatement. So there's going to be significant differences. But I'll tell you something that's interesting, maybe to both of you. Uh, I also went to the Republican Governors Association, the National Republican Senatorial Committee, not once, not once in talking to over 30 Republican senior members did President Trump's plans or objections come up as an issue of import to those individuals on air or off. Not once. It does not drive the conversation among Republicans in the way that it drives the conversation inside the beltway. Interesting. Very interesting. Second question for you, Hugh, on, on um, this question, since you've, I was going to ask you about the reinstalled uh, nonsense, and I'm wondering who's going to lead the intervention uh, with him on that. But given what former Vice President Mike Pence said uh, at that dinner last night, and given that you've written, you know, about who the potential candidates for 2024 might be, one, do you think uh, Mike Pence is going to is looking at running in 2024? And two, how do his comments from yesterday, from last night, impact his chances, given where the rank and file of the Republican Party are? Well, this goes back to my Kamala Harris comment. And uh, vice presidents are not well positioned to run for office because they get stuck with the losers. And if you two really think that she got that because the president has confidence in her, those two portfolios, don't answer the phone when the telemarketers call because I'm worried about you both. She got those well, that's jobs. That's why we have caller ID, Hugh. <laughs> well, that's why we love caller ID. But don't, don't talk to anyone who's selling anything because Kamala Harris got those for the same reason that Mike Pence got sent to funerals. Vice presidents get the stuff nobody else wants to do and cannot win. So he's not in my top tier, and I like him. I've known him forever. Uh, we are both Midwesterners. He's a wonderful human being. He did a great job as vice president. But the front runners are named uh, Cotton DeSantis and Mike Pompeo. 
Tim Scott, and I'm forgetting one of them, and I'll, I'll Chris, uh, not Chris Christie, someone else, but not Mike Pence, because it's just very hard for a vice president to run. And the reason it's only been successfully done by uh, uh, Nixon and Biden in modern times are uh, unusual circumstances. And I, I, I don't think it's going to be easy for the vice president to come back in, in 2024. Well, I'm glad you mentioned um, Biden, because when he was vice president, President Obama gave him lots of tasks to to do, and he was very successful at them. And that is the model that now President Biden is using when engaging his current vice president, Vice President Harris. So, um, shocker. I disagree with you, Hugh, and I'm sure Donna does too. We are so we are now way over time. This has become a hallmark of this show. Is to go way, way over time. Um, but since we're over time, Donna, real fast, if you have a less than a minute um, response to anything Hugh said on anything. Well, all I will say is that whether he's talking to he was talking to the Republican leadership, the fact is that the base of this party is Trump's party. Uh, and there is no way that any of these candidates, so-called candidates for uh, 2024, is going to run without being able to play to Trump's party, period. All right. And with that, we are definitely going to have to leave it there. Hugh, Donna, we are out of time. There's another Washington Post Live coming up, so I've, like, eaten in to the prep time for that. So, as always, thank you very much for coming to First Look. Have a great weekend. Thank you. You too. Thank great you. to be with you. And as always, thank you for tuning in. As I said, come back in now less than an hour, 10.30 a.m. Eastern, um, when my uh, colleague Jackie Alemany will uh, interview the co-chairs of the Problem Solvers Caucus, uh, caucus Congressman Brian Fitzpatrick and Josh Gottheimer. Join me tonight for Brooks and Capehart on the PBS NewsHour. Check your local listings. And then join me on Sunday at 10 a.m. Eastern for the Sunday show on MSNBC. Once again, I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for The Washington Post. Thank you very much for watching this, what is clearly an extended edition of First Look on Washington Post Live. Have a great weekend. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.